Ever feel judged at the gym? You don't know how to use the leg curl machine? Are you serious? Is this your first day alive? Um... <laughs> no, it's okay. I love helping people during their first day on Earth. At Planet Fitness, get energy without the judgment and join the judgment-free zone. Never intimidating, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. Get energized today during the Big Fitness Energy Sale for 24 cents down, $10 a month. Cancel any time. Deal ends Friday, January 12th. See Home Club for details. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to Golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to Golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's Golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery and I saw the Golo commercial and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I forgot my own name. I'm Sarah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fantastic start. Oh, wow. Okay, so... This is the, uh, the, the downside of alcoholism. I was literally just drinking a cup of tea of all things. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've really ruined this intro. <laughs> G&T. Anyway, we really have because we're about to get all excited and welcome our very special guest today, the very lovely and wonderful author, William Hussey. Thank you. Thank you for being Hi, with William. Us. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm very excited to be on the podcast. I'm, I feel like I'm kind of like following the path of giants, all of the amazing people you've had on there. Apart from Chris Whitaker, because we're not allowed to... Thank you. Yeah, Correct. we're not allowed to inflate his ego anymore. <laughs> oh, there's just there's just no room left. Like, it will just explode the earth. But, uh, you know, we've we had some great guests on, but we're very excited that you're here and to talk about your lovely books. Actually, this gives me a good opportunity to hand over to Sarah to read the bio that she meticulously wrote in detail this morning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no, I can't do it. Frankie wrote it, so <laughs> any issues? Everyone knows I did. Yeah, but what, you never know, Frankie, you never know. Um, so, mm. <laughs> William Hussey is the award-winning author of over a dozen novels, including the Crime Fest award-nominated Hideous Beauty and The Outrage. He has also written YA books such as Broken Hearts and Zombie Parts, which is described as a big gay rom-zom-com with heart. Born the son of a travelling showman, he spent a lifetime absorbing the history, folklore and culture of fairground people, knowledge he has now put to work in his Scott Jericho thrillers. In his new book, Killing Jericho, the first in this series, we meet Scott Jericho as the disgraced former detective who is fresh from jail and forced to seek refuge with the fairground family he once rejected. When a series of bizarre murders comes to light, with deaths that echo a century-old fairground legend, the police can't connect the victims. But Jericho knows how the legend goes, and that more murders are certain to follow. As Jericho unpicks the deadly mystery, a terrifying question haunts him. 
as a direct descendant of one of the victims in the legend, is Jericho next on the killer's list. Outside of writing, William lives in the seaside town of Skegness with his faithful dog Bucky and a vivid imagination. He loves Agatha Christie, a certain Belgian detective in particular, and is an all-round utter delight of a human. Oh, <laughs> Well done, Frankie. Thank you. All correct? All accurate, I assume? All accurate, especially the delight of a human being. Yeah, obviously. Uh, so that was what I thought. Thank you. That was very <laughs> humbling. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's all factual. As I say, we, we before we started recording, we did have a little chat because William listens to... William listens to my Labours of Hercule podcast that I do and uh, he's been so lovely and supportive of that so I'm very excited to meet you finally and have you on here so thank you. Oh I love Labours of Hercule it's brilliant it's uh, yeah I it's one of those things I was saying just before we started that I really identify with both you and Adam so I was that nerdy kid at school who was like running into school after the Sunday night David Suchet miraculous and trying to share all my enthusiasm with all my friends and they were just looking at me gone out like what the hell are you talking about yeah yeah did you hang out with the dinner ladies like adam (laughs) yes yeah it was me and a couple of english teachers and a cup of tea in the staff room that's not bad company it's always the english teachers that are the best ones isn't it Mm. i always found that oh i had had a history teacher who he he did this challenge where he said you not, must name a 20th century genius. And people were saying like Einstein or Churchill or whatever. And I said Agatha Christie. And he absolutely lambasted me and said that she wasn't a genius and that her writing was terrible. And um... the fury that built inside me as he was um, just taking her to pieces. I will never, ever forgive her. Um, I, how, can, how can anyone argue that she's not a genius? That is blasphemy yeah it was weird though it was kind of like I feel there was this little 90s period where she was really attacked there was a whole Mm. group of like Ruth Rendell and Michael Dibden and all those kind of like big crime writers of the 90s just really went for her and now she's having this amazing renaissance and everyone loves her getting her for the genius years so we love that yeah i think they're just jealous that is an interesting thing though there is um often like um, i i was at harrogate last year and there was a lot of talk about how they're historically there was a bit of uh, snobbery around Agatha Christie because she's her books are very accessible and they're not, you know, literary, you know, masterpieces in terms of language construction and whatnot. But that's the the beauty of them is that anyone can pick up an Agatha Christie and to make that to translate those the genius of her writing and, and the genius of of the mysteries so though that anyone can understand them is incredibly skillful like you have to be a genius to do that absolutely so, and it was like so I had an argument with Ruth Rendell when I was 14 <laughs> what a sentence <laughs> CV line right there I was at this kind of proto Harrogate crime festival and I was by far the youngest person there my dad took me and Ruth Rendell was there and she was on a panel and she was really laying into Agatha Christie and what she said was the best I can say about her is that it's a bit like slipping into a warm bath. It's fine, but it's not very invigorating or challenging. And ah, she's slamming on baths. Yeah, love <laughs> the bath. What a miserable cow. <laughs> but she was like, and I put my little 14-year-old hand up and I was like, um, so because she said, oh, well, she's not very uh, dark. She's not very challenging. And I said, right, well, she doesn't have a load of blood, guts and gore on the page, but you've got, some of her plots, conspiracy by a whole group of people to systematically murder someone who abducted a child <laughs> and murdered a child. You've got kind of like a 
book where a child is drowned in a uh, well while they're bobbing for apples. That's yeah. pretty dark stuff. I don't know what mm-hmm. anyone else's definition of dark is, but that's pretty dark <laughs> stuff. Yeah, God, that's the thing. Just because it's not all gory and violent, that doesn't mean it's not dark. Well, what I'm saying is we should round up a posse, go for the history teacher, and then go for Ruth Rendell. We can do like a vigilante <laughs> mob that we can lead everyone over because this blasphemy cannot stand. It's outrageous. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've got to ask before we start the um, proper questions and in inverted commas, what's your favourite Agatha Christie book? Oh, well, this is going to be the book that I'm going to be buried with. All right. Don't tell oh, us then. No spoilers. Amazing. We'll wait for it. Also, I love that that's, that answer's come in. So I'm very pleased. You are a very, very good company here <laughs> today, William. So let's start off by talking about you and your brilliant new book, which Sarah and I have both read yes. and thoroughly enjoyed. Very exciting. And also just your writing. So you, you write a lot of different styles and very interesting career path you've gone on. So how did that begin for you? Yeah, so it all began, I think, about 15 years ago. And I had a couple of adult horror novels published. But I was always right. So I grew up in a traveling fairground family. So I grew up on the fair traveling. Wow. Uh, my mom, as you know, you guys have read the book, so you know all the terminolo- terminology now. But my mom, yes. my mom was a Joskin, as in that's someone who is not a traveler. And she married my dad. And so I had two kind of influences. I had the oral storytelling of travelers who are these amazing, brilliant oral storytellers can spin a yarn. I think it comes from that gift of the gab and the spiel and you know getting people in and getting their interest in the games and rides and stuff so I had that side and then I had my mum's side and she absolutely loved books like Jericho's mom in the book does and so I had that kind of thing of um hopefully being able to tell a story where you want to know what happens next from the oral story selling side but then knowing how to structure a book on the other side but having said all that I kind of grew up in this environment where kind of people from our background didn't really go to university, weren't really interested in schools, weren't really interested in books. So I was a bit of an an anomaly. And also when I was a kid, we didn't have authors going to schools like I do now. So it always seemed like these these were these kind of godlike beings, you know, these, and you couldn't emulate that, just being a little working class traveller boy, you know, I couldn't emulate that. And now I know lots of writers. I know that they're definitely not godlike beings. <laughs> Chris Whitaker, I hope you're listening. Chris to Whitaker. This. <laughs> so it took me a long time to get round to writing these horror novels. So I started off with horror novels. Then a friend of mine challenged me to write some uh, YA, some horror thriller YAs. And then I actually came out uh, as gay quite late, again, because of the kind of prejudice and the culture which is again reflected in killing Jericho mm-hmm. I wanted to show that whole traveler culture in the book is all the positive sides of it the community the support you get but also some of the negatives and there are a lot of small c conservative opinions still in it so I actually came out quite late so some of the then LGBTQYA books that I've written kind of reflects my kind of obsession with dealing with low-key prejudice that a lot of kids still face within you know, small C conservative cultures and things. How much of, obviously, your background is quite similar to Scott Jericho's, maybe not the going to prison part, I'm not sure. We don't know. Well, there's still time, <laughs> especially, if we, especially if we get your history teacher. So <laughs> I, I wanted to ask how much of, of Scott's experiences mirror your own growing up in that, in that world. Yeah, I mean, I haven't 
I haven't beaten any Nazis almost to death, but not yet. <laughs> but um, you know the way the culture's going. But um, <laughs> it's it's a kind of faithful representation. So my family settled down when I was about four or five. So I still remember traveling a little bit, but not you know. Uh, but Scott is obviously traveling right in the book, right up until he's eighteen. He goes to university, but definitely a lot of his stuff is based on me. So the fact that he's a gay man growing up within that culture which is a very loving and supportive culture in lots of respects but had just has this issue is much better now than it used to be and also an academic which he is you know his love of books and he wants to go to university and there's that whole flashback section in the book where he goes to Oxford and all he wants to do is talk to other people about their world and their love of stories and books and all they want to do is talk about his world which he's trying to escape from and I had that experience at university. You know, it was um, a lot of people just become fascinated by the idea of the, you know, traveling life. And, um, you know, because it is a, it's still a culture quite apart. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of me and Scott. But, I'm, I, you know, I couldn't solve a murder, though. I'd be useless at that. <laughs> you never know until you try, to be fair. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, who killed your history teacher? <laughs> It was us. <laughs> Miss case closed. This will be the best double bluff if we murder him. We wouldn't have announced it on a podcast before we did it, would we? That's yeah. it. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. <laughs> and we've just done it to this. Exactly. I think it's really, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book as well, and, and what you touched upon is that you do represent a positive side to the traveller community. And I think particularly in the UK, the press is often so negative around the traveller community. And there was a show that used to be on uh, for a long time called My Big Fat Gypsy Weddings in the UK, which was, you know, it kind of lampooned it a lot and was, you know, very kind of discriminatory in a lot of ways about it. So I think it was obviously you can write about it in a completely different way to a lot of other people because you've lived it and you you know the great side of it. So it's great to see that kind of real honest kind of discussion around it that wasn't sensationalized or kind of made for, as a figure of fun as it has been in the media. So was that, was that an intentional thing for you to go out and, and to the true experience that you've had? Yeah, as and also as well, there, the word traveller is just such a broad umbrella term for lots of different groups under that. Mm. And my specific one is obviously showman fairground, yeah. which is very different from other type of groups. But yeah, I, I mean, what I tended to find was in crime fiction, in all fiction, really, it was always written about by people who may have done a bit of research, but if you haven't lived the life, and you know, I, I very much have the belief that anyone should be able to write about anything, but that what tends to happen is that own voices, in inverted commas, are kind of like totally pushed out in favour of usually white, upper middle class male writers, uh, straight male writers, definitely. So those genuine voices are lost. And so what you tend to get, even with the best will in the world and the best research can be done, you tend to get slight parody version of that life. And you also don't get the fact that there are nuances between the little groups within, you know, within that umbrella term of traveller. So, yeah, I, I really wanted to represent. But I also so I had a little bit of pushback from someone within the community by saying, oh, I hope you're going to present us in a positive light and I said well I'm going to present us in a realistic light warts and all so all the good stuff and Scott's family and the community there are pretty amazing 
They mm. take him back when no one else would. They give him a place to stay after he's totally rejected them. They're very supportive. But also, you know, I wanted to show that he had never felt comfortable in that life because of his sexuality and stuff like that. But I, I don't think it does anyone a favor just to say, oh, I'm just going to do a hagiography and do a, you know, yeah. a totally rose tinted view of what a community is like. It does a disservice to them mm. as well. I think you definitely got a very fair representation in there. It, it, was, a, it was a delight to read about. I, what I really loved was the whole setting because it's not something that I've ever seen in a book before. I mean, I really only read crime thrillers, to be honest, but mm. I've never seen one set in any sort of traveller community before. Um, and I really loved that. And I will say there was a review I read when I was um, researching the book earlier and someone described it as casually queer. And it was that sort of thing of there's a gay character, but the yeah. book isn't about the character being gay. And I really loved that as well, because quite often the whole personality type of the oftentimes token gay character yeah. just surrounds that. And it was really refreshing. So, yeah, it was something new, but you didn't make a big deal about it being something new, the whole, the whole piece. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, he's basically just, you know, he's got all this kind of like, you know, baggage that he's carrying with him, as all detectives must have baggage. Yeah. Um, but he's got all this baggage. But the fact that he's gay is almost an irrelevance to him. Mm. It's kind of like he's got his love interest. He's got his boyfriend that he lost. But it's kind of like, apart from the fact that he still carries that thing of like the community not fully accepting him when he was younger. Mm. I didn't want it to be an issues book. I've written a couple of YA issues books but it's that's not the point of the story really yeah and that kind of thing of him being also you know that he is you know he's you know he's got a brilliant kind of mind for puzzles he's completely intolerant of um violence against people who he would feel that he should protect or look out for and he, um, you know, the fact that his sexuality is not relevant to that, you know, it's, mm. uh, yeah, I did actually, so we've had some really lovely reviews, all, virtually all the reviews have been <laughs> really, really lovely. Yeah, but we did yeah. have one the other day, basically said, um, gay sex and crude language does not a good book make. That's a great book. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a start, hot. I was like, actually, there are two scenes in it where he's just had sex so we don't yeah see gay sex and I was just thinking what a puritanical kind of way to look at it but it's you know there's a tiny minority of crime fiction fans who are small c conservative they almost like the genre because a lot of crime fiction will set the world to rights in inverted commas and that's what they like yeah. to see they like a neat ordered world where everyone is in their place and everyone knows what they should and shouldn't be doing. And so I don't know. I think I'm hoping that guy is just going to be a one-off, but, you know, you just kind of wonder whether I am kind of Daily Mail baiting slightly with a gay (laughs) traveller detective. And if so, I'm very proud of that. Love it. (laughs) Damn right. (laughs) I'm really intrigued as well about um, your writing process obviously because writing for such different genres as well you know like YA and the zombie side of things versus the kind of grittier crime things do you have a different process when you're writing across genres or is it largely the same 
Yeah, I think the approach is largely the same. It's just kind of books that I want to read, really. So I love reading all different types of fiction. Crime fiction is my favourite because I basically, I mean, slight side story, but how I got into it was because my grand, I was living in Wales at the time, and my granddad took me up to the village hall and they were showing a rainy Sunday afternoon and they were showing Peter Ustinov's uh, Evil Under the Sun. Oh, that's a great one. I was, I think, about eight or nine. And I remember just sitting, it's the campest thing ever. It's such a camp movie. But I remember sitting there just thinking, at the end, thinking, this is the cleverest thing I have ever heard of. It's so brilliant. And um, as a side note, the guy who showed that movie, years later, we found out is a serial killer. <gasps> Amazing. What? Yeah, he's, I've forgotten his name, but he's, I think he's North Wales's only serial killer. And he owned a uh, cinema uh, in North Wales. And he used to go around showing uh, films at the, you know, the local village halls and stuff. Ironically, murder mysteries. Ironically, murder mysteries are very strange. <laughs> anyway, I'm going really off topic. No, we want to go back to that in a minute, because <laughs> that's a future book, surely, right? Yeah, exactly. It was... Uh, yeah, it was very funny. I was watching, well, it wasn't funny, but I was watching a documentary <laughs> in the late 90s and I was thinking, that's the guy, that's the guy. Wow. But I I love reading kind of all different, so I love romance, I love, you know, I really enjoy YA, I really enjoy mysteries, thrillers, horror. So I just think, what is the kind of book that I would love to write, uh, to read? And my approach is just to do it that way. Obviously, there's less gory murders in the YA. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> otherwise it's the same approach nice i love i missold myself slightly because actually probably the only other genre that i read other than crime fiction is ya's can't go wrong with a good ya can you you can't you can't oh yeah i haven't read chris wicker's ya so uh... <laughs> it's very good actually and if you read the acknowledgements i've got one in there so i have to I check have... it out now just read the acknowledgement page. I wouldn't worry about the rest. <laughs> yeah, skip to the end. <laughs> and with your writing process, uh, what do you love about it and what do you hate about it? Oh, uh, I love I love most of it. I always think of it as an ex like writing the book is an exercise in making your initial idea more shit. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because an idea comes to you and because it's not limited by because as soon as you start putting it in words words are a kind of clumsy tool mm. uh, and they kind of like they're not very I mean it's not like music where you can kind of like I wish I had any musical ability at all but you can express your idea through music so my boyfriend tells me in a kind of like almost as a complete thing whereas words as soon as you start putting words down you're chipping away at the purity of that idea you initially had and that's why I always think books are abandoned rather than finished. Interesting. I think Sarah said something similar when you spoke to her that in, in the end, you just have to say, well, this is as good as I can get that initial idea, but it, it's never quite as good. So I, I'd love all of the writing, but being aware that it's never going to come out quite as brilliant as you'd hope to be. And I think kind of, but I do enjoy all of it. I love uh, working with an editor. I really believe that editors should get a co-credit on the front of books almost like a co-author because they put so much into it and uh, the only thing that I can't stand is the copy edit yeah because by that point you've read the thing a million times and you're so sick of reading it that you kind of (laughs) you know just put if you don't don't like you know if the copy editor says I think we should move that comma to here I'm just like do it then please I don't want to read it anymore (laughs) 
Yeah, I bet. But no, I, I enjoy all of it, really. Um, yeah, I love the research as well. So are you a planner, not a pantser? I am a bit of a planner, you know, and I know there's this very romantic thing that I think a lot of writers will say, oh, I don't plan at all. You know, I just see where the story takes me. And obviously, you know, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. I, I plan it, but I tend to find that the story does take over maybe halfway through and it changes. Mm. But um, I always kind of slightly disagree with people who say, oh, I'm not a planner. Because I always say, well, your first draft is your plan then. Mm. That's true. Essentially, we're all planners to a certain extent. But yeah, I am more of a planner. I, the other thing with research, though, is it's a great kind of like thing to make you think you're doing work. <laughs> As you, you know, I'm sure other writers have said to you guys, writers will do anything to avoid writing. <laughs> we have heard that yep. once or twice, yeah. <laughs> Couple times, yeah. Got very organised wardrobes in writers' houses from what we've heard <laughs> and things like that, yeah. Yeah, or you kind of think, oh, you know, I should really take the dog for a walk and the dog's looking at you going, I don't want to walk anymore, I'm knackered. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, the hardest part, is it, when you actually sit down and start writing it? Is it that point? Or... I always find the middle the most difficult. Okay. Yeah. Because it's yeah. kind of like you start with this enthusiasm and you know the end, especially if you're doing like a crime thriller and you, you think you've got a good twist or something. And you know that rush towards the ending and the big reveal is going to be fun to write. But the middle, sustaining the middle of it and keeping up the pace so it doesn't sag too, you know, in the middle. I think that's the hardest bit. I guess with um killing Jericho you must have been gagging to get to the end because we're not going to spoil it but there are very few twists that I don't kind of go "Mm, sort of thought that would be coming yeah absolutely blindsided but I had no idea at all so yeah I think if it was me I'd be sitting there the whole time writing being like soon soon I'm gonna smack them in the face (laughs) I've kind of had a little realization because I'm uh, book two is done Mm. actually And book three is in the planning thing. And I, because I was talking about this to, I think it was Sarah, actually, Sarah Hillary. And I was saying that Christie basically has done every twist. Yeah. There really isn't any yeah. twist left that she hasn't done. And um, we're all really working in her shadow and just doing little variations of her twist. And I realized the other day that the three plots for Jericho are all very slight variations on a twist that Christie has done. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I, I didn't consciously do it as like, oh, I'm doing a Christie twist. But I think virtually every twist you can think of is a variation on something she has done anyway. It's how you dress it up and do it and basically um, disguise it as best, you, as best you can. But it's, um, yeah, I, well, I'm very pleased that you didn't, <laughs> you didn't guess it. No, absolutely no clue. Um, and I love that. Oh, it's rare. It's really rare. And I'm I'm curious as well with with the the twist, which we're not going to give away spoilers because everyone should go away and order the book and read it anyway. With that, when you had the idea for it, was that always the plan or did did you through the writing? Did that suddenly come come up more organically? So I'd had an idea for a twist. Uh, So I had the whole plot more or less worked out and I had an idea for a twist. And I won't tell you what it is because looking back on it, it was quite lame. (laughs) Well, now I really want to know. And then suddenly, as I was getting into it, the other thing, so I don't like it when authors introduce a twist and they give you basically the information you need to discover the twist 
five pages before the twist. At the yeah. End. That's just cheating. Yeah. So I was basically writing it and I'd, so basically, you know, all the characters are in the first half of the book, kind of like, you know, and then we just follow them. But I just started to write about this character and I thought, hmm, is this character what they necessarily appear to be? And um, I'm trying to avoid pronouns. I know. <laughs> so it was becoming intrigued. And I, as I say, I, you know, I'm, I'm generally a, a fan of, it was basically becoming intrigued with that character that the twist occurred to me. Nice. So it's kind of a, it's unusual for me. It's kind of a character-based evolution of it rather than me sitting down and thinking, right, this is the twist and then working out how the character fits into it. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of doing it. I think it was Nikki French, actually, who we had on recently. They were saying that even when you have a plan, there still has to be that that room for the the creativity and the character to take over. I think they were saying about one of the characters in their books who they'd originally written in as a bit of a plot device. And then he he stuck around and all the char- other characters liked him. He got on well with them. So he just kept appearing <laughs> in their stories. So it's just that, that you just never know. I guess you never know when you're you're creating the seed of a character where it's going to grow to. No, and that that actually happened again in book two. So really? I'm kind of hoping that you don't guess the twist of book two, but it was kind of like it was thinking about a particular character and thinking there's more to this character and the, the twist is in the character. So intriguing. I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not being so obtuse with it. It's kind of actually, I don't even know what he's talking about anymore. <laughs> No, it's just all the more reason for people to read the books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one question that we ask all the authors we interview is, if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? I know that you said that Scott and yourself, obviously you have a huge amount of similarities, um, but is it Scott? Is it someone else? Uh, so I wouldn't like to be Scott because... Tough life. <laughs> it's Yeah, he's had a very hard life and... I mean, basically, my plan is with these books. So I've been commissioned for three. So I'm at least three, hopefully. But I'm envisaging the first the first three to be a trilogy where we go on a journey with Scott, real arc. But he, he has got a lot of rage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, what I like about him, though, is he tends to direct it at people who deserve it. Yeah. I mean, I don't waste much sympathy on the people, <laughs> on the particular person that he does have in his sights mm. in the book. But um, yeah, so I wouldn't like because he's got so much rage, and I don't. I, I'm not a very rageful person. <laughs> I'd actually really like to be Harry uh, Scott's love interest in the book. Yeah, he's nice. He's nice. He's very sweet. He's also um, so my partner is a brilliant mu- musician, and I cannot sing I'd love to be able to sing I'd love to be able to play the piano and obviously Harry is a chorister he's got a beautiful voice he can move Scott to tears which is no mean feat in the book Mm -hmm. and you know he's got his own demons but I think yeah I mean when I was thinking through Jericho in particular I was like god do I want to be any of these people (laughs) because they're so Mm -hmm. a lot of them are very damaged and stuff but yeah I think Harry would be the one I like that. Good choice. You've also made me think, I don't think we've had a single author, Frankie, say that they would want to be the killer. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. Mm. And then the day we we do, that's when uh, actually it's all part of an entrapment plan to expose them as killers to the police. (laughs) And then that's how we get them. Yeah, well done, William. You've escaped. (laughs) You passed the first test. 
Although, no spoilers, <laughs> but I'm just thinking about Harry now. Oh, yeah. okay. Maybe he's not that nice after all. Well, we can't, yeah, we can't have any spoilers for Killing Jericho, <laughs> but there is that thing with Harry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, mm, anyway, yeah, okay. wait a more. <laughs> People listening, if you haven't ordered it already, then God, get hurry up because you've got to catch up with the conversation yeah. here. I'm also really intrigued as well around writing a series and that decision to enter into a, a in a long-term plan with a set of characters. Was that something you set out to do or did it happen kind of accidentally? Yeah, I um I kind of thought that he had more life than one book. I, there's also lots of questions in the first book and they're not answered in the second book. But they will be eventually of stuff like what happened to his mum? Because his mum is, ref- his, we know his mum has died, but we don't really know the story behind that. And we know that was the catalyst for him essentially leaving the traveller life. And that is kind of explored a little bit more in book two. So, yeah, I, I just thought there was a lot more life left in him. And I'm really hoping because I've got a book four idea, mm. uh, which is I've been commissioned for three books. So just hope, you know, hoping that they will be successful enough that we get commissioned for more books because there's a new chapter in his life after this kind of trilogy ends, in my mind anyway. Brilliant. Okay. It all depends on those pre-orders. So. All right. Everyone listening, we'll get come on. on. Yep, everyone else. <laughs> do it, do it. So, as a prolific crime reader, by the sounds of it, as well as a writer, um, what typical crime genre trope do you hate? Slash Ossikov, if hate's too strong of a word. No, there is Not one. Not really- person. Oh, <laughs> here he is. Carry on. <laughs> no, there is one that I really hate, and it's not kind of done so much anymore and I guess quite a serious point but it's that LGBTQ people in a lot of crime books are either the victims Mm. and they have no agency they're just the victims of serial killers or they are the perverted serial killer and it's because of their sexuality or their identity that they are victims or they are perpetrators that's something I really wanted to address as we spoke about earlier in Killing Jericho, that he is brave. He's the most intelligent person in the room. He happens to be gay. Mm-hmm. So no relevance, you know, that his sexuality, he's out and proud. You know, it's done less and less now. And one of the books, I think, you know, probably five or six years ago when I picked up Sarah Hillary's Marnie Rome books and her character Noah, is, um, you know, an out and proud uh, gay man working in the police force. And that was so refreshing to read. And that's why, you know, I've got huge respect for Sarah for that character. But, you know, we all know those kind of books where I wish it was still a relic of history. And it is getting better. But, you know, you know, think back to Science of the Lambs. And I love Science of the Lambs. I love the film. I love the book. But you've got that character. And there's even, they, even, they do try to make it better in the film, I don't know if it's in the book as well, where Jodie Foster says, oh, well, he's a, he's a transvestite, but most transvestites are very passive people. They're, you think they're very passive people, are they? Mm. It's kind mm. of like insulting by the explanation of trying to make it better. But, um, you know, that whole trope of kind of either victimising or, and unfortunately, it's still going on today. I can think of one very high-profile. So can I. <laughs> Your friend, Sarah. 
Yeah, don't disagree. I think it is loads better now, but you still do see it. It is loads better, but it's still, I think, rare enough that you notice it when there is a queer character or actually a character of colour as well. Mm. It's still, yeah, it doesn't just wash over you, does it? Which is a sign that it's still an issue. Maybe not as awful of it. That's poor terminology, actually, isn't it? It's not, I guess, outright prejudicial a lot of times, but it kind of casually Mm. is. It's, yeah. yeah. And even with She Who Shall Not Be Named on this podcast, <laughs> uh, and when, when that particular book came out and the passages oh, about <laughs> that character were leaked, but the, the, the internet was rightly furious because it's like, what year is this? Come on, you outdated relic of a, of a woman. Like, what are you thinking? So hopefully, at least when these things do crop up, there are people out there that will do their best, you know, to put it right and... You know, for all of the arguments against woke, the whole point of being woke is to talk out against prejudice and, you know, call these people to account. And that's the whole it's basically not being an asshole. So, uh, yeah, the more the more that um, these people do get called out, hopefully the less and less we'll continue to see it. Yeah, I think kind of like I'm just waiting for someone to call Jericho a woke character because he kind of like is a gay traveler who punches Nazis. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you put it like that, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, yeah, and yeah, I, I mean, it definitely is getting better. But I'm, I'm really hoping we do get to put four because I've got a really, I, I've got an idea for a uh, trans detective who is going to be Jericho's equal in all respects. Brilliant. In book four. So I'm hoping we get there. And my other tiny little thing, which isn't, you know, that I, the trope that, and very few of the, none of the authors I love ever do it. But it's something we touched on earlier, which is. Doing the twist at the end where basically you you could not guess it. Mm. You know, it's impossible. Or that thing, which this was very much a motivation of writing Jericho. I wanted to write a book where you didn't have to have a science degree or degree in forensics to work out who the murderer is. Mm. So yeah. the clues are very of those Agatha Christie type clues where it is just basically presenting you with something and you just misinterpreting an everyday object or a turn of phrase that is just misheard or something like that. Yeah. You don't have to have any special qualification to solve the mystery. Yeah. You always feel like you've been a little bit cheated when you get to the end of a book like that. It's like, I've just wasted three hours or whatever reading a book where I could never have worked out what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my little rule is that the murderer should always always be mentioned uh, or introduced or at least mentioned in the first say 50 pages or so that, that makes sense mm. yeah that's fair then it's fair give us a chance yeah chance, yeah <laughs> and as a as a, a big reader of crime and various books what was the last book that you read and loved so it was tina baker's uh make me clean i've seen that book everywhere on online she's done an amazing job with that book she's brilliant she does the social media stuff so yeah. brilliantly i'm just because I'm I'm talking to you now and we're on screen, but we're not doing a visual podcast. And I cringe seeing myself on screen every time. But she is so brilliant at that. She is mm. like absolutely fantastic. And the book is fantastic. The main character is one of those characters who you kind of think, do I like this character? Don't I like them? Mm. It's not a prerequisite to like a main character. The main thing is that you find them interesting. And she, this is absolutely fascinating main character and the little twists and turns it takes. Is Mar- uh, and Tina is um, 
traveling background as well. Oh, and she's wow. got a whole little traveling part of the book. And we're going to do Bloody Scotland. So we're going to do like a little panel with me and Tina, another uh, author, but who've all got traveler aspects to their crime novels. So um, love that. That's great. I really want to go to Bloody Scotland. I may have to come this year because it looks so much fun. Like the torch procession and stuff looks amazing. I can't wait to be my first one, so I can't wait. But yeah, um, have you had Tina on at all? No, but we'd love to. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll reach out to her. Viper, they're just, they put out such interesting books. And yeah, so she's in good company, clearly. It's uh, the right place for her. So we'll have to check that one out. It's really good. Frankie, it's time. It's you not doing it nope. now. Nope. You do it better. I did my mm. token one last week. It was mm, subpar. <sighs> you did a fantastic job. Okay, well, okay, well, <sighs> fine. I do enjoy doing it. So it's. I just like to share the experience, but whatever. Okay. So, William, I have some terrible news <laughs> um, that I have to break to you now. No. Um, I know. I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, you have committed a terrible crime. God. <gasps> I know, against your history teacher. Maybe, I don't know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so heinous and violent and depraved was this crime that, unfortunately, you've been sentenced to death. Oh, my God, okay. What What did you do, William? What happened? God, it would be killing the history teacher and <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? It's, it's just... I've let enough time go by that no one would suspect. Mm, yeah, apart from that, we talked about it so <laughs> much until this episode this, comes yeah. out. <laughs> This is what sent him down. Oh, my yeah. God. Can you imagine? Yeah. You're really bad. Mr. Epson was otherwise a very nice teacher. but Was he, though? Nah, he didn't like Agatha <laughs> Christie, so he's a very flawed human. But Clearly, a lot of darkness within that man. Um, and you, maybe you've done it. Do you know what? Arguably, you've done a good service to society, taking him off the street. But <laughs> unfortunately, the courts didn't see it quite the same way as we have. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, it is the death penalty. So I'm very sorry about that. But good news is... Uh, we're going to get in that kitchen and we're going to make you the death row meal of your dreams. And that doesn't mean that Sarah and I are necessarily going to cook no. it, unless you want us to, but we can make you anything you want or from any time period or from any, any, yeah, we can get anyone in any to make chef. it basically. Yeah. Any chef, any family member, whatever you want. So what would your death row meal be? So I'd really like my, uh, my boyfriend's cheesecake, which is Aww. not a euphemism. That's not a euphemism. <laughs> Well, you know, death row. Is it? Death row, you know, all bets are off. You can do what you like. (laughs) Conjugal visit. I know. I feel like you should have a conjugal visit as well. We'll allow it. Um, And what kind of cheesecake? Some sort of happy ending. (laughs) Oh, he he does an amazing kind of. What did he do last time? This is the cheesecake, by the way. It was like a lemon, it was a lemon cheesecake. It was really good. But he's, uh, yeah, he's a very good cook. So if he could basically be cooking me and he does an amazing pizza. So he's he's just a brilliant cook. So anything, I mean, I'm sure he'd be crying into the cheesecake. Yeah. Salty cheesecake. Salty Mm. cheesecake. Also, your boyfriend can cook well, bake, make music. Mm. he's just lock that down kind of the ideal man he's kind of like yeah i hope he doesn't realize that he is too good for me because i can make it <laughs> right and that's it you're good too oh he also is brilliant at making stuff this is what i was thinking so he's actually currently constructing a whole vivarium for like oh, wow. these frogs. he loves frogs so he's 
He's making it from scratch. But I feel that he might be able to bake something into the cheesecake that I could use as a way to escape. He would research the hell out of it. That I could. It depends how I'd be executed, I guess. But some antidote to the. I don't even know, but he'd find a way. I'm sure. I mean, unfortunately, he doesn't. Oh, how am I? Yeah. What? I mean, do you have a preference? Yeah. So I think I'd like to. So I wrote a series of YA books called Witchfinder, all based on the 17th century witchfinders. This is going to sound odd to begin with, but I'd quite like to be burned at stake. Mm. <laughs> That's odd. pretty odd. Yes. <laughs> All right. It's that thing. Did you ever hear of that thing where their family members would come and throw explosives into the fire? Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'd quite like that because I'd like them to come throw the explosives into the fire because all the people were like cackling and rejoicing at my death. I would then shower them with bits of my gory body as the explosives. Nice. So I would, you know. Get some kind of revenge anyway. I think your boyfriend could probably build the best explosive. Yes. So it was over very quickly. Yeah, or he'd build a really beautiful, uh, like, pyre for us to tie you to. (laughs) Like, it would be stunning. Lots of frog kind of emblems on it (laughs) and things. Um, Yeah, it would look great before we set fire to it, unfortunately. But um, that is a bold choice. I'm impressed. It is. I think it would be quite quick, though. If I, I, that's the proviso, if I had the explosives. Yeah. 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 It kind of ruins our next question, because it doesn't sound like there'll be much to go into the coffin, to be honest. We'll, we'll we'll gather all the goop and stuff yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. put it back yeah. in the coffin. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yum. Um, so <laughs> after you've uh, after you've eaten your cheesecake and pizza and blown yourself up and become a cheesecake. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> One final gift to you: you can pick any book you like to be buried with. Very excited to hear what it is now. Okay, so I would choose Agatha Christie, obviously. And it would be a murderous announce. Nice. Good choice. A marple. Okay. Marple. And I know it's not a furrow, but I think it's just the most brilliant concept for the beginning of a book. That in a little village newspaper, it says a murder is announced and will be taking place at this location at this time. And all yeah. what I love about it is all the villagers go round to the house and all give an excuse as to why they're yeah. there. <laughs> I'm not just I'm really nosy and I want to see what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so clever though, the the reason why behind it and why it's all been done. And the other thing is it's one of the marples though where she doesn't really solve it through intuition. She does there's proper cluing in it and she really mm. works it out. So in so, I love all the marple books, but in some of them you think, or oh, she's been touched by some divine inspiration as to how she worked it out. But it's very, very clever. And it just makes me, that is, I love Agatha Christie's bar and like you guys, I, on a Sunday afternoon, that is my comfort thing. Mm. That is my one comfort marble from the Joan Hickson era of Miss Marple, where I just put it on. It's just a lovely, and the other great thing about Murder is Announced, everyone, and they're quite rightly, will criticise Christie for some conservative social attitudes, which she did have. But there's a middle-aged lesbian couple in a murder instance, and it is the most tender, sensitive depiction of this couple who live together. And when, you know, no spoilers, but when something happens to one of them, the broken heart and the anger and the rage of the other person. And, you know, it makes me think that sometimes critics of Chrissy are a little bit too hard on her, saying that she was 
you know, there are certain elements that are stuck in their time, but it's just beautifully random. It kind of goes back to what we were saying before. Like, you know, we could say, oh, you know, LGBTQ characters in crime fiction um, in the past, that that was of their time and therefore, you know, we shouldn't judge them too harshly. You think, well, wait a minute, Christy was depicting sensitive lesbian couple in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great answer. I love A Murder Is Announced for multiple reasons, but one of them being that when I was very young, too young, arguably, (laughs) and one of the rare occasions that my father took me somewhere, but we went to see a play adaptation of A Murder Is Announced and not to spoil the ending for anyone that hasn't read it, but when the murderer is revealed in the play, they made it very scary. They run at someone with a pair of scissors and go to stab them. And I was absolutely terrified for ages afterwards. And that now has a real special place in my heart, <laughs> that, that mild childhood trauma that I experienced from that story. So uh, great choice. Love that. Have you read that one, Sarah? I have. So I'm... Um... William, you were saying about it being like comfort Sunday afternoon viewing. I, my comfort listening, I always listen to an audiobook when I go to sleep. Don't know if you've seen, but on Audible, there's like four, I think, collections of the BBC Four radio adaptations of Agatha Christie's. And the Marple one, it starts with a murder is announced. So I've, I've read the proper book, one. but I've listened to the adaptation quite a lot. They're so lovely. June Whitfield, wasn't it? As, yeah. As Marple in that, which, yeah. Kind of, yeah. She's a little bit too Twittery for me. Oh, I love June Whitfield. Yeah, but as Marple. I love her. But I always think Miss Marple is really steely. She's like, I love, apart from Adam and Frankie, I bow to no one in my uh, love of Poirot. But Miss Marple, she's got a, you know, she is much more steely than Poirot. Mm. She's so hard. I mean, she is like, if anyone murders anyone, I'm going to see you on the gallows and I'm going to be attending that kind of like yeah. execution. She is, yeah. And it's especially chilling when you consider that she really has no reason to be involved at all because she's literally just a nosy old woman. Poirot was a detective, so it, it makes sense. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. The wildest Marple casting, I think, was in the film version of A Mirror Cracked from Side to Side. And it was bloody, what's her name? Angela Lansbury played Marple. But she was the same age as Joan Collins in that film. <laughs> yeah. And that she's meant to be a lot older than her, which was fun. Yeah. That is such a campy movie as well, though. Yeah. So that whole great. era. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. This is the thing, kind of like, David Suchet is Poirot. There is yes. no other Poirot. Correct. But I enjoy Ustinov as a kind of weird alt-universe Poirot. Those yes. films are so fun. And I think, like Mark Gatiss once said, the most fun you can ever have with an Agatha Christie film is probably that version of Evil Under the Sun. Not because it's kind of superior to the David Suchet version at all, but just because you've got oh, Diana Rigg and um, Maggie Smith. And yes. It's total- like bitching at each other the whole way through the film. It was Dynasty, effectively, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it was so 80s Maggie Smith's outfits. They were not, they were not 30s at all. <laughs> I love the bit when they're, they're reminiscing about their days as showgirls. And Maggie Smith says of Diana Rigg, she says, Alina could always throw her legs in the sky higher than any of us and wider. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I also love the Euston off death on the on the Nile is brilliant because Angela Lansbury, again, gosh, she's all over the place, but she was so good in that role as that the drunk writer lady. Hilarious. So, oh man, I want to go watch those. Why I this- will never, ever watch 
the, and I know we agree on this, I will never ever watch the Branner. But I don't <laughs> want to watch it. Correct. William, you are my kind of person that you're saying all the right things. And uh, I would like you to co-host a podcast with me instead of Sarah now because oh, yeah. you're a better friend. Be much, much better for both of you. <laughs> Not at all. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, William. Thank you so much Thank for coming on and chatting with us. And where can people find you on social media to follow you? So I'm at William Hussey Author or W has the author, sorry, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find my website at williamhussey.co.uk and I'm just about to start my Jericho newsletter. So Ooh, very nice. Basically all the socials and all the web page. So. What I appreciate most is it looks like you were looking down at a bit of paper there. Do you have them written down? I have them written down. See, Frankie, I can never remember It's not ours. his podcast. <laughs> it's his social media. Whatever. Yeah, but it's the name of the podcast you forgot. <laughs> the actual name of it, Look, which is different, isn't it, we, Sarah? We record at the end of very long work days, Frankie. I, oh, bless I, you. I work very hard. <laughs> Sarah, where can people find us on social media? This is your test you now. Where can they find us? Red and Buried Podcast. Yeah? Yeah, just search. Just go- well, Nikki French said it there. <laughs> just, just, just Google, Google it. it. On um, Instagram and Twitter. And um, we've got a website, Red and Buried Podcast. No, yep. yeah, redandburiedpodcast.com. Yeah. And you can email us at redandburiedpodcast at gmail.com. Very oh my good. God, I'm like a professional. Wow, 30th time's the charm. <laughs> good job. <laughs> William, thank you so much. As they, everyone needs to go and buy the wonderful Killing Jericho and give it five-star reviews on everything because it's great. And can't wait to get our hands on the second and third. Brilliant. We'll send you a proof. Amazing. Oh, yes, please. And will you come back when book two is out as well, please? Oh, Oh, yes, please. That'd be amazing. We'll let people listening go. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Come back soon for another Red and Buried podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. 100 years since Nosferatu first terrified audiences on the big screen. 30 years since Francis Ford Coppola gave us Bram Stoker's Dracula. And um, 10 years since Dark Shadows with Johnny Depp. Vampire Videos is a podcast taking a look at this iconic blood-sucking monster on film and television. I'm Dan Owen. And I'm Hugh McStay. And we're here to guide you through a century of vampirism on film. From Hollywood's golden age with Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula. To the more lurid hammer horrors of the 60s and 70s starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Through to the 80s boom in vampires which brought these creatures of the night into the modern age. And everything this century's had to offer us. From foreign and independent films, spoof comedies and even teenage love stories. Yes, I'm talking about Twilight. We aim to cover it all one bite at a time. So join us on a voyage into the depths of vampire cinema, old and new, with weekly guests offering their own insights and expertise. And why not follow us on Twitter at Vamp Videos? A proud part of the We Made This Podcast Network, subscribe now to Vampire Videos and thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.